0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV
1: podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes.
2: A year and a half ago, I wouldn't be leading this webinar. We're here because of the race equity movement. After George Floyd's murder, things changed for most of us whites like me who thought we really understood racism. And once something is seen, it cannot be unseen. The personal and systemic racism that has so pervasively shaped our lives and societal structures, we're just swimming in the matrix. And sometimes it's hard to see what you're swimming in. This includes the systemic racism in healthcare, research, and academia. But once we get a glimpse into the systemic nature of racism, we see that we're actually an active player in it. We're part of a system, part of a community, and the change is left to each of us to do and to do together. And it becomes a moral imperative. We're not immune here in the liberal Bay Area, in academia, in our own university. We have around 106 Black faculty out of 2000. It hurts to name that, but this is about looking honestly and carefully at the facts. In our own department, our Black members experience racism at home. Around 50% of them, whether it's going into a hospital or into a workplace, the microaggressions, et cetera, that they experience are something that we now know about. So we realized we really wanted to hear, there's a lot on anti racism. We wanted to hear an example of what you can do in your own healthcare system setting department. So we looked around and the answer was really right in front of us. And that was bringing in our chair, a very famous geneticist. He's not here because of his genetics expertise, but we brought in Matt State to talk about what he has done in our department, partnering with our faculty member, Michelle Porsche. And they've created a a black study group so as Rhonda McGee has said, every discipline needs its own reckoning. And we're sharing part of ours. In the mental health field, there is such little representation of Black therapists, clinicians, researchers. So we noticed this during the, uh, during the race equity movement, the greater impact on our Black colleagues here. We had so few Black therapists to help serve them. So this is an invitation into our own home, our own workplace and the dialogue we're having. It's not a one time conversation. It's one we intend to keep alive. So I'd like to introduce my colleagues who are leading this with me, Michelle Porsche, She's an associate professor in our Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. She has two masters in counseling and psych and a doctorate of education from Harvard. She's an expert in quantitative and mixed methods. Uh, Welcome, Michelle. Come on. uh, Come online. She's done many studies on child trauma support and academic outcomes. I want to read the title of a paper that she did this year with uh, Lisa Fortuna, Marina Toulou-Shams, our colleagues in our department. The title was Inequity and the Disproportionate Impact of COVID-19 on Communities of Color in the United States. And I'd like to introduce Matt State, the Obender Family Distinguished Professor and Chair. He got his MD from Stanford, PhD in genetics from Yale, and he leads international collaborative genomic studies of autism, Tourette's, and other brain disorders. He's discovered many genes, both rare as well as risky genes. And he's here because he is an example of of a white upstander, not a white ally, but actually someone who stepped forward to say, what can we do and listened to people and has has started us on a trajectory of change. And lastly, I'd like to introduce uh, Rhonda McGee. Rhonda is the professor of law here at the University of San Francisco. She's the author of a very, very popular book. You can barely buy it on Amazon because it keeps selling out. It's called The Inner Work of Racial Justice. She's an internationally recognized thought leader on integrating mindfulness into higher education law and social change. She's developed the concept of color insight instead of color blindness, and has published uh, papers on that such as, color insight understanding race and law effectively using mindfulness based practices. She is one of the most skillful teachers and facilitators I have ever worked with, had the honor of leading retreats with her and working through mind and life with her. Welcome Rhonda. And uh, wanted to thank uh, Lisa Fortuna who planned our session with us. Okay, so I'm going to turn it over to you Rhonda, we would just love to hear a little bit about your experience in this work Mm -hmm. in the long game that we're in.
3: Well, thank you so very much, my dear friend, Dr. Apple, Alyssa, and really everyone here from um, this really um, esteemed uh, team uh, at UCSF. It's an honor to be with you. Um, And we are coming together, of course, um, with a focus on exploring how it is that um, we, each of us, can do our part To support um, what Alyssa referred to as the reckoning uh, with racism that so many of us have been turning toward um, over the course of the last year, in particular, and uh, in in response to or in the wake of um, the very public murder of George Floyd in the United States. And as I I might as well say, we're meeting today. We happen to be meeting today on the day that the um, sentencing for um, uh, Officer Chauvin uh, came down. So my heart is beating as I talk to you because these matters that we have brought into focus, uh, looking at the legacies of racism and the call, a deeper call, that Alyssa, Dr. Eppel was mentioning, having sort of heard and having responded to over the last year. This deeper call to turn toward rather than away from uh, a conversation about racism that goes deeper, perhaps than it ever has, and really challenges us in ways, perhaps that we have not been challenged before. We're all in the midst of this, And we're all perhaps in our own ways. And I mean, some of us have been engaged in looking at race and racism all of our lives by virtue of our experiences, our backgrounds. I can say that certainly has been more or less true for me uh, as an African American, a Black racialized woman growing up here in the United States, Um, born in the South, um, in a community in which the legacies of the histories that we talk about. that we are more and more courageously naming as uh, the systems of white supremacy and their ongoing imprint. So um, segregated communities and schools, those are ideas and concepts, but they're also things that we've lived. And I can say as a person who was born in the United States in North Carolina in 1967, um, though the Supreme Court had outlawed uh, segregated schooling, Uh, some years before in the Brown versus Board of Education case, by the time I went to school, even in the 1970s, the public schools were still officially segregated. That's North Carolina, you might say. What does that necessarily have to do with California? Well, some of you may know that right here in San Francisco, in our beloved progressive city, we certainly have a long and deep history of Um, commitment, frankly, to um, policies, procedures, um, ways of organizing our lives that support um, um, the maintenance of white supremacy. And so all of us, um, wherever we are, and certainly even here in San Francisco, um, are uh, given this opportunity to come together, And reflect on what we know and what we might know more deeply and richly about how the legacies of white supremacy are in and shape, you know, shaping our institutions, have shaped our disciplines, have shaped the communities we live in. Um, And from knowing more, how we might do better in alignment with our commitments to really make a more just and equitable world. In which everybody can really flourish. And I want to just name a little bit of additional particularity right here in San Francisco, where I happen to live. You know, I live in a community um, in the Monterey Heights part of town, you know, not not far from Sherwood Forest, which is famously historically as a place where doctors, including doctors from UCSF, have lived all of these neighborhoods were officially restricted against having people like me move in uh, through racially restrictive covenants that were endorsed, uh, supported by buyers and sellers in these neighborhoods, not just through the late 1940s, uh, at which time the Supreme Court outlawed those covenants, but even beyond that, into the 50s, into the early 60s, even again, after the law has said they were illegal, members of the San Francisco elite and home buying communities decided to continue to enforce those covenants and to keep people like me out of neighborhoods like this. And not just people like me, lowly, you know, professors at USF, Willie Mays, as many of you may know, was one of the more famous um, African-Americans who sought to move in actually less than, you know, three tenths of a mile from where I'm living and sitting right now and who literally had to bear the brunt of this kind of racism. So my friends, I'm saying that when we talk about racism, we're not talking about that thing that's you know over there in the South. And we're also not only talking about those policies and practices of decades ago, because they actually have shaped the communities that we're in, have shaped some of the ways we think about each other, and have shaped the ways that we engage in our professional roles, me in the field of law, you all in the field of healthcare. And so, um, what I'd like to offer at this moment is an opportunity for us to come together, feeling the support of meditation practices, compassion practices, a kind of invitation then for a whole body support as we engage in this work. We know, research has shown us, that um, looking closely at issues of identity, issues of cognitive bias, Really calls on us to do more than merely intellectualize because we are, we've come really easily aware, readily aware that our whole bodies are in this. We're having emotional reactions to some of the things I've even mentioned in this call so far. You might notice what's happening in the body when I talk about, when I invite reflection on segregation in our communities. What do you know from your experience about segregation in? A community you've lived in before you came to San Francisco. What do you know about how the community you live in in the Bay Area, whether it's San Francisco or beyond? How that community, wherever it is, perhaps in the U.S., how is it that your communities you live in were formed? And what are some of the ways that literally we've been formed in environments that have formed in us? Biases. So pausing to recognize that we all know something about this, and that when we come together to look at this closely, more than our brains are involved, and really sort of creating a spacious, gentle willingness to be present to the multidimensionality of what is arising when we come together around these topics. In my own work and research, I've looked at how meditation uh, can be a really important support. So integrating all of the beautiful wisdom around meditation and the research around neuroscience um, into this work of anti-racism. So what I'd like to do is invite us to take a moment and pause and just feel the ground beneath us as a support for our being together and reflection in the next few minutes. We'll just do a short meditation in which we feel our bodies in this moment, the support of the ground beneath us, the chair that we're sitting on or however we happen to be holding our bodies in this moment. Allowing ourselves to feel as we breathe in and out the connection to the floor and through that connection to the earth that we all share in this moment and in every moment that we've ever lived or will. As we breathe in and out and notice the way in which the body breathing has its own wisdom about how to downregulate when we're feeling emotionally distressed. So just feeling our way into the natural self-regulating capacities that our neurobiology has formed in us. And leaning into that as a support for noticing our reactivity, noticing the threat sensors being activated by this conversation, and inviting a kind of a gentle willingness to just create a little bit more space, spaciousness within yourself to see more of what's here without judgment, without restriction, or let's say with as little judgment as possible as we create the space for learning and growing together. So breathing in and out, noticing any way in which you're feeling any tension. And perhaps on the next in-breath, noticing also what is well within you. And on the out-breath, expanding the wish for wellness into those areas where we're feeling tight and allowing a release and a letting go. Coming back to the sense of being at home and at ease here on the earth. And so uh, we might, as we transition from this moment of meditation, imagine a thread supporting us from this whole body awareness of our sort of inherent belonging on the earth, the way that we are able when we relax to feel the support of being here together Um, to feel maybe a little bit more openness to hearing from people whose experiences differ from ours. May we take a thread of this resourcing meditation that we've just done and allow it to be a conscious support for us as we turn toward this work. This is the work of my own um, commitment and um, passion over the last 20 years or so, culminating in this book, The Inner Work of Racial Justice, healing ourselves and strengthening, um, transforming our communities through mindfulness. But it's really an invitation that I offer us to come into in each in our own way, holistically engaging these questions of anti-racism and what we can do from where we are to make a difference. So thank you so much for sitting with me. And I want to turn it back open to Alyssa, over to Alyssa to Thank us.
2: you. Thank you so much, Rhonda. That Thanks. was so needed. Thank you. Thank you. I would like to remember to always breathe like that so that I can think better and more clearly and not so automatically and reactively, and especially on this topic where I think we're always worried that we'll we'll say the wrong thing and have blind spots. And I, I certainly get um, a very ruminative mind <laughs> So I would love to introduce back Michelle Push and Matt State. And we just would love to hear you talk about how this Black Study Report came to be. It is on our website for anyone to look at, especially the executive summary. And it's an incredibly in-depth report, um, the different parts on looking, surveying our Black members, listening to them and providing recommendations. Okay, so I'll stop there and turn it over to Michelle. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Alyssa. Um, Maybe I wanna start by saying, um, you know, much appreciation for this opportunity to really have a conversation with Matt. We've done all of this work and we just don't have time to have these, take the time out to really talk about the process. And, you know, I think that's a good focus for us, for our, Time together, um, just a little bit about myself, I um, you know used to uh, uh, introduce myself as a, a African American of mixed race. My family are all from Louisiana, um, so I'm Creole, which means I have descendants of enslaved people and of slave owners. Um, I also want to point out colorism because that's a big part of this too. I have skin privilege as a lighter skinned black woman. We got into a little bit of that, um, explored a little bit of that in our focus groups, Um, but I think that's one thing I I want us to keep in mind too when we think about the results. And let me just say a little bit about what we did. Um, We surveyed the whole department. Uh, You know, we we did have certain sections of the survey that were really more focused on Black faculty, staff, trainees, and students. And then um, questions that were for everybody together, we were also able to have focus group interviews with. um, We had 12 different focus group interviews and some of those were with black identified faculty staff and trainees and some of them were just with mixed groups of. um, uh, White employees and employees from other racial and ethnic backgrounds and those really gave us a lot of rich information about what was going on Um, and i also want to say this all happened during a pandemic and it has really been just about one year since we started this Um, so i think a lot has happened in a year and um you know maybe the a good start is to matt you know what were you thinking about when you uh, came up with this initiative
1: um i I lead a department in a school of medicine that um you know is committed to uh, health equity and the public mission and and you know that's a it's a part of my job um uh, and an important part of my job to think about how um, you know, we can advance that and um, uh, and um, but but at the same time in the midst of a pandemic when, you know, we were struggling to try to figure out sort of you know, how to keep things going and transition care and everything else that that um, the the murder of George Floyd was just um, uh, profoundly impactful uh, for me as a leader um, and, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do my own version of what Alyssa said at the start of this—that you know, it, uh, part of that reaction, there was also a sense, kind of, of, of shame about having that reaction at that moment, um, and and feeling a, 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 an intense need as a leader um, to try to respond to that in more than just you know platitudes um, about you know our commitment as a department to public health and 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 the public mission and community service, um, you know the the. It, it immediately spawned a lot of self-reflection about, you know, and recognition that this was an ongoing serious problem. Um, that as chair, I just had not, I, I, you know, I felt immediately both this kind of called uh, need to act in, in in the face of kind of that those, you know, horrific circumstances in my awareness of that, um, uh, um, and, and and also. Um, you know, being aware that I I was really late to the game. And, um, uh, and despite having a really active um, uh, diversity, equity, inclusion program in the department and feeling like I, I, you know, um, that, that we were really trying to push ahead in that area, we have great leadership in that area. I also felt like there were gaping holes in what I understood about what was going on. Um, And, uh, and that I needed to do something, as I said, that wasn't just you know, a statement from the chair that, you know, we have, that we're committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, And, um, and, and so in the face of that, it felt um, like the first thing to do was to start asking questions. Um, And, um, uh, and um, I have to say, I got introduced as a geneticist. I'm also a child psychiatrist. I'm actually first a child psychiatrist. And then it's geneticist. And, you know, sort of the importance when you're faced with a problem, whether it's a clinical problem or scientific problem or anything else, of just starting to try to find where you can listen, where you can understand, where you can try to get some purchase on on someone's experience was really important. And so one of the first things I did was to turn to Lisa and, and Michelle to start asking questions with the idea that we needed, I needed to to um, uh, to support something that was going to um that was that that would help us act as a department and and it, it seemed like the very first step was having a conversation, but also um trying to do something that would in, it really in, increase certainly my understanding and um and I really felt like it was very likely that there were similar gaping holes um, in the understanding of other members of the department about the experience particularly of the black members of our community, faculty, staff, and trainees, and that's sort of came up with the idea that we we ought to really do a deep dive on that. But much of it was in conversation, honestly, with you about about how to begin.
0: I, I and I have to say, I had some advantage in doing some work like this prior. I've done a lot of research on you know understanding racial identity development, um, looking at microaggressions and how those interrupt. Um, Stem trajectories for uh, black and Latino high school students so you you know, this was in my wheelhouse definitely to look at that and at the time I felt uh, so immobilized. um, By what was happening that this was an opportunity to have an active involvement in something that might make a difference and. um, to our credit like you know i think timing is everything and i think um two things that really stand out for me was that we had actually had a meal together before this so i felt like i could really trust you that was really important and i also felt like as a new person in the department i could reach out to a lot of people and they might be you know more frank with me because they didn't know me and they, you know, could trust me or not. But I, you know, uh, one of the things that I would say often, especially in the focus groups, was I really want to hear you. This is confidential. We really want to know the truth, and um, and I truly believe the chair really wants to hear this. You don't have to hold back. Um. So, you know, those things were. Uh, just really important. And just to say a little bit about what we found, you know, half of the people um, responding to the survey, and that means, you know, across race, ethnicity, we you know, we're saying that they had either experienced themselves or witnessed anti-Black racism. Um, our our Black faculty, staff, and trainees were reported experiencing racial slurs and microaggressions from patients. People were really, in pain, you know, I got that in um, doing those focus groups. Um, there's a lot of talk about pay inequity and retention issues, and you know, people who said I considered leaving, and I and I, you know, said this to Matt a number of times. This is a gift that people um, gave. They they were uh, really honest about how they were feeling because a lot of people, and I'll say me included, leave institutions without saying anything um, knowledge is power and you know I might feel like uh, it, I don't even want to share how I'm feeling about the, the racism that I'm experiencing so you know this is really valuable and you know some folks may think why um, why do we focus on anti-black racism yes it was very much in relation to the murder of George Floyd. But so often we've been, um, me, you know, many people I know, Lisa can attest to this too. We're in, um, uh, I'm sure Rhonda as well, you might be in a discussion that's supposed to focus on racism, and it will quickly devolve into, um, gender issues or. Um, S.E.S. or anything else, because to really talk about racism is really painful, um, and and we really need to get an understanding of white supremacist systems that um, really divide us. Um, they're hurtful for everybody, um, and they really stop us from bringing all we are all our gifts to work uh um you know i just i i i just want to say you know what we uncovered in this report was a lot of i think racial trauma most of it psychological but that has long-term impact on our health uh and you know One of the ways we address that is through having these opportunities to really talk talk honestly about what's going on. And then to think about remedy. I think what was so important about what we did was the agreement that I would gather this information through this black study group, thanks to the members of the group and also the liaisons who really helped with you know, pulling together um, the design of the survey, getting people to participate in focus groups. So it was a group effort. Um, I just had a little bit more expertise in social science uh, research to be able to pull it off. But the agreement is to get this report, which included recommendations from the people who participated and give it back to Matt and the executive committee to begin to work on um, remedy. Like, what are we gonna do now? And so, you know, maybe to hand it back to Matt to talk about, you know, what's going on because so many people said, is this just gonna be another thing where you write a report and it gets filed away? And, you know, so I gave all, you know, all my street cred to say, no, it's something's gonna happen. And we can talk about a, a little bit later too about I think there are some things that are happening already, even if they're not formalized.
1: So, well, there's a lot <laughs> in what you said. I'll start with the last question and just say I felt the same way. Right? It was really important um, at the start to not have this be another committee where you know a report is generated and gets filed somewhere, and then five years from now. You know the issue raises again, and it's like, oh yeah, I think we did a report on that five years ago, so there was no question in terms of the intention of this, and it's part of, as you know, how we designed it, which was to really. To really focus on on sort of uh, you know um, on this initial study in a time limited way uh, and thanks to your advice about how to do that, how to organize it incredibly valuable um but to really make that um, time delimited and to have an explicit commitment that once that was done that there would then be a, a next um, a process that would include both immediate actions that you know that we could take right away. Um, Uh, a near-term, you know, set of goals, um, so that it didn't feel like this was going on forever, but then also a recognition a lot of this work is, is not something that's going to get done in a single effort or a single set of working groups, et cetera. So, um, so we did commit to kind of, um, multiple timeframes. And, um, uh, so part of that concretely, um, was to form some anti-Black racism work groups. And we have three work groups that were defined based on the recommendations uh, of the Black study group, the initial uh, fact-finding or, you know, kind of um, ecological evaluation of the department. And we're very close to getting those recommendations. And, you know, it feels like a year is a long time. And sometimes, you know, I, I have to remind myself, as I said, that, you know, i mean the report you know really um uh, underline this this is a long standing problem in our department um you know despite you know certainly i can say from my own heart despite my best intentions like reading that report was heartbreaking to me um and and so, you know um some of my reaction to it was really fighting against just a sense of despair in in reading what it's like. And so I, I can't say enough what a gift I agree it was for people to be honest about what they were experiencing in, in the department. And, 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 you know, under any circumstances, I feel like it's our obligation to move forward on this. But I have to tell you, reading that report just made it like, you know, inescapable like getting that kind of feedback and understanding what the experience is currently not has been not 50 years ago, right now in clinical situations, you know, day to day in our department that I really was blind to, um, really blind to um, despite caring a lot about this area. The only other thing that I wanted to say, and then I, 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 I really, I'm interested in, in, I mean, you were, you sat with it much longer than I was able to, obviously, when you were going through the data. And I really am, I really, this sort of tension between acknowledging like what a deep rooted problem this is and not losing hope, not, you know, not becoming nihilistic about, you know, about the, the, you know, the, the power of structural racism and the inability to move that, you know, it's, it's definitely something that I think about a lot, how we can make sure that we don't. You know, kind of give in to a sense of hopelessness about this. Um, but um, uh, I did want to say that, you know, this was, I think, in retrospect, and this panel has really, you know, forced me to think more about, you know, the decision making during that time. And and on reflection, you know, I, I'm kind of sorry to say it was some of the most dis- difficult decision making I've ever had, as as chair as a leader and that was in the midst of a pandemic which was the most difficult you know decision making i'd ever had to do as a leader but i felt less secure in my own judgment and my own understanding about what the problems were about how to proceed on all of this and 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 so i have to say it wasn't a An unbelievable like stroke of good fortune that you and Lisa had arrived at the time that you had that we had a chance to have dinner together, Um, because one of my first thoughts when I was thinking oh my God I really I just I didn't know what to do at all, I felt like if I asked black faculty and staff to. um, you know, um, to help me understand this, that that's putting a tax on an incredibly small number of people in the department who, you know, I, I can't burden with this, but I don't know how to move forward without having a deeper understanding of this. So I just want to end by thanking you and Lisa again for at a really tough moment, just providing very kind of calm, um, open accepting feedback about what I was struggling with and helping me kind of figure out as chair what I could do that would, you know, be constructive and and I hope in the long run and move things forward.
0: Well, you're welcome and thank you. And I I think the things that worked were, you, you, you know, you gave me authority to do this the way I envisioned it. And it, and, it, and it did work the way I thought about it. You know, the way I, I you know, the design was, you know, re- really aligned with my goals. Um, and also, and then that good clear uh, demarcation of, I'm gonna get the information, but I'm not responsible for making things happen. That, you know, that's, that's yours. Um, and I didn't feel, I think in there are ways that things feel taxing and usually they're taxing when you have responsibility without any authority. And, you know, having some responsibility and specific, um, you know, I knew what my authority was and my responsibility in there. And, um, you, you know, I had a little bit of a budget to get help um, as I needed it. You know, those things all worked w- really well and, you know, if there's anything that's taxing, it is, um, you know, it's kind of, it is, it is living through sitting through that pain that, you know, people shared to have that make me think about my own experiences in the past. Um, You know, those are tough, uh, you know, not, you know, they weren't uh, in any way avoidable but I think it was worth it. And um, you know, what I want people to take away from is that what we are really agreeing to is continuing this conversation, not to get discouraged because the problem isn't solved. We are hundreds of years in, we're not gonna solve it with one little, uh, uh, you know, fact-finding mission Um, we're actually, we need to keep talking about this. The goal is to keep improving policy and the climate here and, um, to really think about how we can heal some of the racial trauma that's going on in the department. And it's like, don't get tired, you know, um, because, you know, and that was my concern about, you know, the, uh. Also, timing. We had to go quickly because people then will lose interest, and they're not going to have that same um, commitment to this. But you know, I really want our c- department to c- commit to continuing the conversation, to continue to keep listening. So, thank you.
2: That was just amazing to hear. I think that the, in so many ways. Everyone's in the same boat. We have a lot of white men leaders <laughs> that are not experts in racism. And, uh, you know, I just, um, I think asking the question the way you did, Matt. So, you know, all of us were like, oh, my God, is he going to ask some of our Black faculty? You can't do that. They can't say no to the chair. You can't burden our Black members more. You know, I mean, there's just all this complexity. And so it was so good to hear about the trust that that between you that made this work and thank god you had an in-person dinner before covid (laughs) helps um so for me a turning point was in the midst of trauma and and we have we have all been through so much trauma together and to be part of a department that the chair you know gets up and we start our meeting our our whole department meeting and matt you said you know you We are not okay. We are not okay, and just that acknowledgement, just like opening the door to change. So, I mean, that was in my head for months. We are not okay, and it's okay because we're calling it out and we see it. And this is, you know, the beginning. What are we going to do? So, this report was a a very tailored question about this building, this program, this environment, and. And so my question to you guys is, is that, you know, that's this open curiosity that gave us some answers and some directions. And is that something that you would suggest is doable? I mean, Michelle, you had a lot of years of training (laughs) to, to create a mixed methods, quantitative, qualitative report
0: i I do think it's important, yeah, for other um, departments or you know groups that might be thinking about doing something like this that, um, yeah, I do think it requires having knowledge about the theoretical bases of identity development and racism and, you know, um, legal issues, yes, um, all of those things. And that doesn't happen just because you might be a minority yourself. Um, you know it's you know, depending on where you are with your own identity, it can be challenging. Um, and I think I think this is a question that requires that you really talk to people. So yes, I think it's important that we have um, those qualitative, Expertise as well, um,
2: and I have one more comment, and then I wanted yeah. to hear from Rhonda. I, I feel I have felt so fortunate to be part of such a responsive conscious system that our department, most of all, but also the university, responding in their own ways. So I took a a mandatory champion diversity training, and we all have by now, most of us. And I thought, you know. I came with thinking I knew I'd heard this and I knew it and and you know I ended the meeting just crying with the my eyes being open to that i was I was a passive at white ally and and I understood what a real upstander is, which is speaking up and taking action when you see. That that racism is at work, and all of the you know, from microaggression to 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 clear aggression. And I thought of situations, um, particularly, um, you know, with trainees when I didn't see, I didn't understand, and it was all so clear in retrospect. So it was this big review of how much I had failed certain people and you know of course i had shame and regret and i couldn't go back but the but the you know to now understand that i can be an upstander going forward and you know, Matt, I just you are such a great white male upstander. And I I know that's not a identity that you planned planned on, but you know, our department, we had so many executive meetings when you said this is the first priority. So everyone understands, you know, we're we're acting on the recommendations and the subcommittees. And that is, you know, I'm I feel I feel so proud to be part of our department. I don't know what I what this would have been like without without the kind of communal recognition of we are not okay, and we're working together. Yeah,
3: if, and may just echo and, and really just respect and appreciate what you're sharing, Alyssa, you know, the research does confirm um, that uh, leadership and support of these initiatives is, is really, really important. It's not that we don't have power wherever we are and we don't have some ability to make some change. I want to just underscore that. We all have some power, whatever our role or our status, whatever our identity. Um, And so a big part of this is really how do we rightly use the power that we have? But when we are in leadership, we have a particular uh, degree of power and influence. And if we don't use it intentionally to support deepening capacity building to address these issues in this kind of ongoing way that you're speaking about as being necessary. Um, We are using it for something else. In other words, um, silence around this issue teaches. Um, Not standing up does its own, you know, um, has its own, is its own training. And more than that, right? I mean, you know, let's just say I know it's not true here, but there are places where the leadership is actively hostile. And therefore, that's a kind of contagion. However verbalized this is, we know that hostility can be exuded in ways that are not verbal. You all know this as well as anybody, you're better. And so all of these things impact um, the environments that we're in. And so for those who are listening to this and just thinking about your own situation, you know, having that ability to sort of really see clearly what we, what we have in terms of resources, um, the agency that we have to make a difference, however small, from right where, right where we are. But to have a kind of willingness to kind of reckon with, like, what is the situation in terms of willingness of those around me, those in power? And what can I do in light of all of that? And so um, I love that the, the project that you all have so beautifully kind of embodied and modeled um, really centers on this understanding that this is long-term work. We didn't get here in a generation, and we will not end these problems in, I mean, you know, we live in cultures that want to end things in a semester in the university system or a year or five-year plan at the outset, maybe 20 But really, we're talking generations. We have to realize that that's one of the problems that we're dealing with, right? And that doesn't mean that we can't do anything, right? So how then do we meet uh, uh, what Matthew, Dr. State was talking about, that tension between hopefulness, that we can make a difference, but also the despair that can come from seeing the vastness of the cloth, seeing the great shape of the ocean or the river, right, meeting these oceans. Um, It's a lot. And so we do need a higher level of a kind of fortitude. We, we really do. And we really need to support ourselves and each other and kind of growing up in a certain way around this. Because really, I think these questions need to, to really stay with us. How is it that we get to these places of high education authority and have not seen these issues as really germane and important? Where were we taught that these things weren't important for us and, and for our success? Because the reason why we have to keep asking that is because those trainings are still there. They're not going to go away just because we have this new commitment. So we really have to be on the lookout, as, as Alyssa was saying, to all these subtle ways that we might be called to stand up. And to also have that spirit of, of willingness to broaden, keep broadening the circles of concern and inquiry. So that for example, I'm just gonna name it, I have a UCSF patient, um, not in your particular department but in the UCSF community for more more than 20 years. I have had some experiences with this hospital. And uh, as again, uh, a a black embodied um, woman whose heritage also is much more complicated than we're given to name. Uh, when I walk into that hospital, how am I read as a cisgender, petite, brown-bodied, black-bodied woman? And what has that meant for the kind of treatment I've gotten? Not in every instance, but in some instances, um, which have left me not feeling particularly respected and appreciated in those halls. So can our increase continue to that degree? We'll need that. Because like all of, as we said before, all of our professions, all of our disciplines are in for this reckoning and in for not for a penny, not even for a pound, but for um, a lifetime and the weight of all of that. And so I will just end my piece right now by saying it's the thing that keeps me at this is that for me, it's not just unrelenting despair and confrontation with difficulty, right, which we must turn toward if we're ever going to change. We have to. But doing it together is actually a source of, I mean, I have to say it, and some people think it sounds Pollyanna, but it's not. It's kind of joy because we're actually doing these things. We are not right shrinking. We are not missing our power. We're standing up together and finding each other in a deeper, richer, more meaningful way in the life that we have. So I hope that people will feel a sense of inspiration and feel that even if you haven't experienced that in your own life, it's possible. It really is possible to have this really more fully human way of being with each other in these spaces and in these communities. And as we see each other on the street and work together, that's what my hope is here, that we can bring that deeper humanity. And that's the healing that I think we're really asking for and that your work can help us inspire going forward.
2: Thank you. That was so beautiful. I would love to end with a meditation, but first, any final thoughts or comments? And, and I'll just say mine, you know, for, you know, I, I um, revealed I didn't know what the difference between an ally and an upstander. And so now I at least have a goal and, and some examples. And I am so uncomfortable. This is such an important dialogue to be having. The question for everyone listening is what, what is your reckoning? Can you start a dialogue in your home, work, institution that makes you uncomfortable? Because it's very uncomfortable. And that means when you feel that, that is that is good. That means you are you're starting to name things and open up things that may make us very uncomfortable. Um and I I I think I um, you know, so have sometimes started to use this sentence of, I'm working on my whiteness. And and so, you know, the the ability to have some get out of jail cards and to be able to be um just humble and start off with I am, you know, I am surrounded by white privilege and I stand in solidarity with my BIPOC brothers and sisters. I you know, I want to say that at the beginning of all all these meetings, but it wouldn't right quite fit in, but I think if we squeeze it in when we can. <laughs>
1: I'm just really briefly, I just um, wanted to the, the notion that um, that Rhonda brought up about uh, about sort of being able to work on this together. That you know, thinking about um, this conversation is um, it, it really was at a moment when I. Uh, so first of all, I have to say, even hearing about that, this was a good thing to do. At the moment, it felt like literally the very least thing that I could do, as as you know as a leader um uh, again, with all the privilege that i have and um uh and and it's been gratifying in a number of ways um to find out that even though you know it it felt like it was a, a, a an absolutely important but small thing to do uh d- because we're just a department of psychiatry and a school of medicine that um that being able to work together and to see the way that people have been generous about sharing their experience and sharing their advice and being open to it and allowing me to be able to move you know, into this space without being you know, without pushing back in a way that, you know, clearly would have been reasonable, like, you know, what, how come you didn't do this eight years ago when you came to be chair has been really um, valuable. And, and, um, and it was that group and Lisa, and I, I also really want to mention Adrian J. Rotno, who's my chief of staff and um, Lisa Fortuna and other members of the leadership team that without that group kind of coming together and saying, yeah, we will take this, we'll help, we'll take this burden on together, we'll help, you figure out what we can do as a department. It, it, uh, it, I wouldn't. We wouldn't have been able to do it. So it was very much. There was, and in an odd way, as you said, some sense of of joy um, in in being able to work with um, with really generous, um, wise people in in trying to sort out how to take one step in the right direction.
0: I agree. Much. Uh, this has been the best part of it working together. And um I have met so many new people who reach out to me and say, could I talk to you about, you know, diversity issues? It's like, yes, of course. That's great. Let's we're doing we're keeping this conversation going. And um yeah, it does give me hope. And there are times for discouragement. And it's a good time to like give it a break. So mm-hmm. I can get some more energy and come back to it. So um, these work groups have been uh, um, also a gift in the time we get to talk openly about these issues and then get to work about um, proposing uh, our recommendations. So. uh,
2: I. Beautiful, oh, Michelle. Thank you so much, Michelle and Matt. And I think a, a word that I'm now adopting is active hope, which is not just hoping, but actually doing that work that also brings so much joy and purpose. And so we will leave it with you, Rhonda. Thank you so much for joining us. And now we, we get a few minutes to um, sit mm-hmm. and end together in our mind and body.
3: Yeah. And the spirit of what um, was just named about our needing to restore. And to take good care of ourselves as we do the work, Um, if we can, just in these few moments that we have, recognizing that the time that we spend matters and just sort of recognizing that within you that came into this conversation and really seeing what that part of you really might need. Might your own personal reckoning look like? What might your own course of restoration and healing look like? What do you need and what might you offer? If you really were able to move with purpose into the call that you're hearing around this work at this time. So taking a moment to really lovingly allow what's, whatever is coming up in response to that question to be met. If we are aware of the need that we have for more healing. Taking a deep breath, bringing a kind of gentle willingness to be present and to create space for at least acknowledging where we are accepting where we are, that we're learning, or that we're wounded, or that we're stubborn, or that we're exhausted. Whatever it is that's coming up, if we can create space, taking a deep breath in and out, Uh, and see if you can invite a sense of, again, what brought you into this conversation, the goodness of that intention and of your own deep aspirations to make a difference around these issues. Breathing in and breathing out and letting yourself become aware of these deeper aspects of who you already are. And as we bring this meditation to a close, inviting A sense of appreciation for all that we are. A sense of compassionate will to alleviate our own suffering, but not only our own suffering, the suffering of others in our workplaces, our broader institutions, our communities, the world. So breathing in, sensing the capacity and strength and power we have to make a difference. And breathing out, relaxing, releasing, extending the wish for well-being, encompassing your whole body in this moment, and extending that beyond to those who really might need the support of this anti-racism, pro-equity focus, beginning right here, right now, for all of us. Thank you so much for your time, your practice, your spirit, your commitment, your brilliance.
2: Thank you, Rhonda. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. And uh, may the work continue.
1: You've been
0: listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.